If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Amos. The book of Amos, chapter 9. If you noticed when you turn to chapter 9, it's the last chapter of the book of Amos. Always like to get to the last chapters of the books when you're in the Minor Prophets, because that's where the good stuff is. Like God saves the best for last. You hear about all this destruction and judgment, and then you hear about the reign of Jesus Christ, and that encourages us all. Uh, actually, as he picks up in chapter 9, he's going to begin with his fifth vision. And uh, he's, he's, uh, then he's going to uh, uh, talk a little bit about the end times and the final judgment of Israel uh, and then the day that comes when, when they go into the millennium and then into eternity. So some good stuff in here tonight. So, so let's pick up in uh, verse number 1 of chapter 9 as we look at this fifth vision. And we see what Amos saw. Amos says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorpost that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them, and he's talking about the Assyrians, when the, he's talking about the time when the Assyrians come down uh, and conquer Israel, and uh, they uh, slaughter most of the people, and they drive the rest into captivity. Even some of the captives are going to die, you can see from this verse. So he says, he who flees from the Assyrians shall not get away. And he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. So if you escape the immediate battle, you're still going to be killed. So uh, you have this last vision, and Amos is looking at the temple, and whenever there was a disaster in the nation, everybody would run for the temples. And so you have all these people gathered in the temple, and God, what does God say? He doesn't say, well, they're here to worship, so... So I'm going to turn this thing around. No, he says, strike the doorpost, bring the temple down. And actually those temples have become pagan temples. So he says, bring the temples down on top of their heads, just like he did to the Philistines a couple of times. So, so uh, he's doing the same thing to the people of Israel. And then those that flee, that survive that initial catastrophe, uh, they're going to be killed with a sword. And those that escape the city, they're going to be captured and killed with a sword. So it's, it's not a very poor, pretty picture here. Then he says in verse number two, though they dig into hell, all the way to hell, which you can't do, although I noticed some people who are trying really hard, though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them back down. So... Uh, the Lord says, you know, I see every one of these rebellious people and not one of them are going to escape. I don't care what they try to do to escape. They're not going to escape. That, that passage right there reminds me a lot of another passage in the Bible. You remember David said something very similar in Psalm 139. Flip back to the Psalms and look in Psalms number 39. 139, I'm sorry, you're right, 139. And look down at ver beginning in verse number 5. 
Psalm 139, verse number five. He says, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. You know, there's no escaping you, Lord. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're, of course, you're there. But if I make my way into hell, behold, you're there too. He says, if I, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. You know, Jonah, we're going to see, tried that, escape from the Lord. You, he, even if you do that, even there your hand will. Now, here's the good part. Now, here's the way David saw it. Your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You know, the fact you can't hide from God is a good thing if you're a born-again believer. It's a bad thing if you're about to be judged. It's a good thing if you're a born-again believer because, because the Lord is there wherever you go to protect you. He's there to guide you. He's there to comfort you no matter what we go through. So I like the fact that no matter what, that the Lord is omnipresent, and no matter where I am, the Lord is there. That's really what we're getting right here. We're getting the attributes of God. Amos has given them to him, and, and David gives us this attribute of omnipresence right here in this little passage. And Amos does the same thing, that no matter where you go, the Lord's there. Now, all of creation is his. Even hell is created by God. Now, we don't want to get into that. Uh, uh, how, you know, how God did that or why God did that other than to judge people. But, but uh, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. And if you're about to be judged, that's not good news. And that's the way Amos is looking at it. Going back to Amos now in chapter number nine, he says, though they dig into hell from there, I shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven from there, I will bring them down. They can't escape me because I am everywhere is what the Lord is saying. Then in verse number three, he says, and though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, that's the tallest peak in all of Israel, they can go all the way to the top of the mountain, for there I will search and take them. The Lord was going to get these people no matter what they did. They weren't going to escape his judgment. From there I will search and take them, though they hide from my sight, at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and he shall bite them. Though they go into captivity from their enemies, from the Assyrians, from there I will command the sword, and I, it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Man, that's some scary stuff, isn't it? Remember what Jesus says. He says, you are either for me, or you are against me. If you're for me, my eyes are set on you for good. I think believe that's what the Lord would say. If you're against me, my eyes are set on you for harm. And, and that's the fate of anyone who kicks against the goads. You kick against the Lord, and you're going to suffer. You're going to do harm to yourself. That's just common sense. So uh, when the Lord says, when I decide to destroy the people, there's no escape because look who I am. Look at what God says. He says, I am the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of 
all the armies of heaven, all the armies of this earth, all the peoples of this earth. What's the, what's the name of God, Jehovah Sabaoth, say to you? It says to me that God is sovereign over everything. There's no authority given unto man except by God, we're told. There's no army that doesn't move without God's permission. And so God is sovereign over everything. And so when God decides to judge, there's nothing to stop him. Nothing to stop him. When God decides to save his people, there's nothing to, 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 to stop God from saving his people. So not only is God omnipresent, God is omnipotent. Because look at what he says next. He who touches the earth and melts it, and all who dwells there mourn, all of it shall swell like the river and subside like the rivers of Egypt. We talked about that last week. He's talking about the Nile River, how it goes up and down. It's unstable. So what he's saying here, I'm the one who uh, creates, uh, the, I, I have the power to make the earth melt. I have the power to, to, to swell the rivers. I control the rivers. I control the armies. God is om, omnipresent and he's omnipotent. God can move the ground when he wants to. He can melt the earth when he wants to. He who builds his, he's also omniscient. He knows all things. He, by his word, he created the heavens and the earth. Look at what it says. He who builds the layers in the sky and he who founded the strata of the earth, who calls for the waters of sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. Jehovah, Yahweh is his name. Then he says in verse number seven, are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O, Is o children of is Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel out of the land of Egypt, right there by e Ethiopia, the Philistines from Kaptur and the Syrians from Kerr? In other words, what God's saying is, yeah, I moved you out of Egypt and you were my chosen people and I brought you into the promised land. But I do that for all nations. You were special to me because you, I gave you, I called you and elected you and gave you a purpose, but you failed to fulfill that purpose. The Lord said you rebelled against me, so you're no better than the Ethiopians. You're no better than the Philistines. You're just like them. I put them in the land where they're at. I put you in the land where you're at. You're not special because I put you in the land where you're at. No more than we're special because we're Americans. We're blessed to be Americans. Don't get me wrong. I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in this world but America. But that doesn't make us better than other people. It actually gives us more of a responsibility, doesn't it? And the Israelites had more of a responsibility because of all that God had done for them. Then he says in verse number nine, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom to do them harm and I will destroy them from the face of the earth. Yes, I will, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. You know, one of the names of God is El Roy. God sees everything. And he says, my eyes are upon, upon the nation, but not for good, for harm, because they're, they're a sinful people, and so I'm going to destroy this nation. When God sees a sinful people, he's at some point, when his cup of wrath is full, he judges that nation, and that Israel was at that point, and they were going to be judged. And they're almost totally wiped out in this judgment. You go back and read historical accounts of 
of the Assyrian siege on Samaria and the things that they did to those people, they nearly wiped them totally off the map. And they would have if God hadn't stopped them. Why did God stop them? Why did he stop them? He stopped them because he had made a promise to Abraham. He had made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham, uh, the Messiah would come for one thing, and that Israel would inhabit that land that was given to Abraham forever. That's a covenant, that, an everlasting covenant. You can read Psalm 105. That's an everlasting covenant that God made with the people of Israel. Well, if he wiped them out, he would be a liar. And we're going to see here in a minute, God saw all of this coming. When he made that promise to Abraham, he knew that the people of Israel were going to do what they did. He knows what we're all going to do. He's, 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 he's omniscient. He knows all things. But the reason the Israelites survived to this day isn't because they're good people and they love the Lord. The reason they survived today is because the Lord does not go back on his word. That's good news to me. Because I wouldn't survive my Christian walk if the Lord didn't say, hey, uh, uh, he who began a good work in you will complete it to the end. If he just said, he who began a good work in you will complete it, if you're good, I'd be in deep trouble. But he makes a promise that he's going to complete it to the end, and he doesn't go back on his word. And if I go to heaven somehow, or if I find myself standing in the, at the great white throne judgment seat, I'm going to say, well, Lord, you can't do this to me. And let me tell you why. Because I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And you said, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So I got news for you. You got to give me everlasting life. Or you're a liar and you're not a liar. Now, I mean, it's not going to get to that point. And I, don't, I wouldn't say that anyway. I'm just talking theology right now. <laughs> I'll be on my face before the Lord. I know where I'm going to be. But I might say, Lord, remember you promised. Verse number nine, he says, for surely I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among the nations. Whenever you see the sifting in the Bible, that's not a good thing. God sifts us all. But, uh, but uh, we know that, that uh, uh it, it's not a good thing. When you're being sifted, it, there's pain involved. It hurts. Remember when Peter was sifted, and that was a very probably the most painful thing that had happened to him in his life, even more painful than being crucified upside down, was being sifted by Satan. And God says, I'm going to sift this nation. And in the sifting process, they're going to be scattered. He says, as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the, they're going to be scattered throughout the nations. They're going to... Uh, let me go back and read from the beginning. For surely I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among the nations. So they're going to be scattered among the nations. As grain is sifted in a seed, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. In other words, the ones who are going to be saved, I'm going to save. The ones that fall into my hands. And, and I'll tell you who was saved from this judgment. The people of faith. Now they didn't, they weren't born again believers because they didn't, because they had to look forward to the cross, but they were saved by faith the same way we're saved looking back to the cross. They look forward to the cross. Those were the people who really had put their faith in God. God knows how to save the elect. God knows how to save his people. And he knew how to save this remnant from Israel. And so he says, they're going to, they're going to, I know where they are. And yet not the smallest of smallest grain of this remnant shall fall to the ground. But the evil people of Israel, he's not going to spare. Look at what he says in verse number 10. 
All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who don't have faith, who say this calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. It was these proud, godless, self-centered Jews. They're going to perish, every single one of them. Those who are so smug that they say, hey, they're not listening to Amos. They're not listening to any of these prophets. This calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. You know, that attitude, that smug attitude is the attitude of a lot of people today. There's a lot of people who go through life, especially in America where we have so much prosperity, and and they think nothing's ever going to happen to them. That cancer's not going to get me. That that heart disease is not going to get me. You know, that's for somebody else. And they go through their life, and they're pretty healthy, and they're, they're pretty prosperous, and they're smug in the sense, and proud in the sense they say they don't need God. They're the captain of their own soul, and, and they go through life. I mean, you see people even in their 80s and 90s who think, you know, everybody else is going to die, but they're not going to die. Man, I tell you what, when you hit, when you hit 80, you're, on a, you're sitting on a time bomb. I mean, you're, it's about to go off at any second. It should wake you up. But it, people are so arrogant. And they're so, they blind themselves. They're so smug. And that's the way the people of Israel, well, all these prophets, not, there wasn't a lot of prophets in that day. Most, mostly they had false teachers, kind of like today here in, in, in the United States. And I, and I, I got to tell you, I, I, we're not far off from a calamity in this nation. I mean, God hadn't called me to get up and say, hey, it's about to happen. But, man, when you see what's going on with Russia and China and some of these nations and North Korea, man, it's just, we, we're sitting on a time bomb. Even if you're 10 years old, you can't be smug. You need to be close to the Lord. And so these people were smug, and they, they just said, hey, this, they weren't listening to these prophets. This isn't going to happen to us. This couldn't happen with the apple of God's eye. You know, it's not going to happen to us. And God was warning them, yeah, it is going to happen unless you repent. And God knew they weren't going to repent. Now, we come to verse number 11. We get to the good stuff. Some commentators say that this is the sixth vision of Amos, a vision of the end time, a vision of the millennium. I think it's more a prophecy than a vision, so I think there are five visions. Some people say there's six visions, so... If I've said six sometimes and five sometimes, you wonder why, because it's, 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 you can make six or five out of it. It really doesn't matter. The message is the same, so don't let that part bother you. All right, but verse number 11, he says, on that day. Now, what day is he talking about? Whenever we see that day, talking about the day of the Lord. When's the day of the Lord? It's actually a period of time that begins with the great tribulation and begins when we go into eternity. So it, it includes the great tribulation. It includes the rapture first, the great tribulation, then the, the millennium, then we, uh, the last rebellion, and then we go into eternity. So in that day, listen to what he says. In the day of the Lord, the part of the day of the Lord that takes immediately after the great tribulation, I will raise up the tabernacle, the temple of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up. Now, remember this when we get to Revelation and we start talking about the rebuilding of the temple. Because who's raising this temple up at this point? God. So if you believe a new temple has to be built before the Lord can come back or before uh, 
the, it's before the great tribulation stops, you got, starts, you've got to be careful with that. Uh, and, and, and several reasons. We won't get into it tonight. I could sit and talk 30 minutes on that tonight. But, but remember this when we get there. Because the Lord here says, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Now, that can be a, in a spiritual sense we're going to see in just a second. But also, also, you always in the Bible, you look first at what? You look at the literal sense. And the literal sense is that he's going to raise, God is going to raise up the temple in that day. Now, in the, that day, that could be in the Great Tribulation. So, so that would fit there if, if it was raised up. I see this as Jesus himself raising up this temple. Okay? You can also take this and take it to the resurrection. You can also take it and take it to the church. This is, this is what we call prophetic foreshortening, where there's, there's more than one fulfillment of a prophecy, and that's definitely the case here. But let's look at totally literal here. Then more than likely it's talking about the rebuilding of David's temple in, 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 after the Great Tribulation or before the great, during, that, during the day, which has fallen down and repaired its damage. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. That is a great passage right there. Very, very interesting passage. It's really cool to me that James, speaking by the Spirit, and you had to be speaking by the Spirit to do this, use this passage to describe the church age. You remember that. Go with me over to, to uh, Acts chapter 15, over in the New Testament, over to Acts chapter 15. There's a lot of great passages in the Bible, but this is one of them. In Acts chapter 15, so we're at the Jerusalem Council, and I'm not going to get into all of that either because we'd spend 30 minutes on that. But, but go with me to Acts chapter 15, beginning down in, first, in verse number 16. They were, they were fighting over the fact of whether or not the Gentiles were going to be part of the church. Okay, and this is what, this is, was James' proof text that they are. And look at, listen to what he says. He says, after this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of the mankind, uh, the rest of the mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Something really cool now. Look at verse number 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. What's all mean in the Greek? All. Known to God from eternity. Next time somebody tells you you can lose your salvation, then that makes, then that makes God a liar or makes this word a lie because if God knows who's from eternity all his works and part of his work is me, then he knew from eternity that I would be saved. That's why Paul says we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world over in Ephesians chapter 1. God knew before eternity how many of you in this room would be saved and how many of you would not be saved. 
He still gives you a choice. Having believed, you're saved, you're sealed with the Spirit, so you have to believe. But you have a choice. You have a choice. But God knows what choice you're going to make before you even created the world. Ain't that cool? See, that's just amazing. I mean, that's some really good stuff if you think that through. That's some really good stuff. He knows what you're going to be like already. He's seen you in glory. You're fretting over things. Ah, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to make it? He's already seen you make it. That's why he's not fretting. That's why when you get on your knees and you're, oh, Lord, help me, he's not, he's not up there screaming with you. He's not worried about it. He's seen this thing work out for you. He's seen you glorified. He knows you're going to make it, no matter what you're going through right now. Because known to God from eternity are all his works. So here's what he's saying here, going back to Amos. He's saying here that this judgment sounds terrible, but it's all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan to build, re, to, to raise up. I believe he's talking about the temple of Jesus Christ, first of all. Then he's talking about raising up the church, which is the, we are the temple of God. God dwells in us. And then he's talking about at the beginning of the millennium, raising up the temple. Now, maybe there's another temple built and it's destroyed, but I think he's talking about Jesus here on earth, raising up the temple and rebuilding the ruins of the temple and rebuilding the ruins of Israel because it's going to be in a bad state after that war. And he's going to rebuild all of that so that all of mankind can come and see the Lord. You can't seek the Lord if you can't see the Lord. This is a word for seeing the Lord. All of mankind, Jew and Gentile, will be able to go into that temp temple that he's rebuilt and will be able to see the Lord. Man, I, I tell you, it doesn't get any better than that. All who are called by my name, even the Gentiles who are called by my name, we're called by his name. We're Christians. We're definitely called by his name. Says the Lord, you going to make this happen? Any of you in here going to make this happen? You're not going to make it happen. It's the Lord who does all things. He sees all things. He has the power to do all things. He knows all things. Because he's planned all of this from eternity past before he even thought about speaking this universe into existence. All of this was planned. All of what you're reading about in Amos was already planned in eternity past. If you ever get a grasp in your mind, and that's a matter of faith, of the sovereignty of God, it, it, it really gives you peace. It really allows you to know that what Paul says is true. All things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I mean, you, you, have, no, you have no doubt about that. It makes you know for sure that he who began a good work in you is going to complete it to the end because he planned that work in you from eternity past. So it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You don't have to worry about it. And man, the millennium is going to be so good. It's going to be so good. Let me tell you the first thing that's going to happen. The curse is over. The curse is over. I don't know. We, we got a new house. and went out there, and I got a taste of the curse. 
I mean, magnolia, these magnolia pods that tear up your lawnmower, you know, these, these uh, sticks everywhere, moles, you know, I thought maybe we'd escape the moles when we got away from sunset, you know, I mean, it's, there's just, it's just there's, there's all sorts of stuff that you can say, man, it's, it's beautiful, but it's still cursed to some degree. And it's not going to be that way in the millennium. Listen to what he says. He says, behold, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. You know what he's saying there? He's saying it's going to, the, the harvest is going to be so plentiful that, that they can't finish reaping it before the plowman's coming back wanting to do his job again. That's how good it's going to be. And the treader of the grapes, him who sows the seed. It's going to be grapes there the whole time. And, and I think that's a spiritual thing, too. Spiritual, spiritually, we're going to be blessed with the wine of the Holy Spirit in a way we've never had that before, in a, in a feeling, in, in a total feeling like, like we experience sometimes on this earth, but forever filled with the Spirit of God. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. And I will bring back the captives of my people. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord. Now, some people say that, was, that prophecy was fulfilled in 1949 when Israel became a nation. Well, hello. I mean, think about it. Are they over there living in the millennium right now? No, they got people stabbing them on the streets. I mean, they fight for every ounce of water they can get. They, 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 they're great farmers, and so they, they, they more than survive, but it's not what it's going to be in the millennium. Maybe that's the beginning of the millennium, and I think it is. We're heading toward the millennium now, and so in some sense you could say that's a fulfillment of this prophecy, but... You ain't seen nothing yet. That's all I can say. God has great plans for Israel. And there is a good chance of reading Daniel, and we'll look at that when we get into Revelation, reading Daniel that, that Israel will be pulled out of that land again. But they'll have to flee that land. According to Daniel, they, they have to flee. And so he's talking about, I think, after the great tribulation is over, when Jesus Christ returns and everything in this earth is just about destroyed. You read through Revelation and you can see that. Then they will come back and they will rebuild their cities. And it'll be like it's never been before. Not since the Garden of Eden. You just imagine this earth without any bad people, without any wicked people. And that includes us because we're not going to be wicked. Even the wickedness you have now will be gone. Just imagine how good it's going to be. And no curse like the Garden of Eden again and the Lord on his throne in Jerusalem. See, I'll tell you, you get to the last, it's worth wading through these things to get to the last few pages. There's going to be peace and prosperity like this world has never seen for Israel throughout eternity and throughout, I mean, throughout the millennium and throughout eternity. And Jehovah himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will sit on his throne in Jerusalem, and you'll see him with your own eyes. That, that's exciting to me. Let's go to the Lord's Prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word, the encouraging news that we have here in this text tonight, just, just the great hope we have. 
Lord, help us to learn to relax, knowing that, that you planned all of these things in eternity past, that, that, that all of our lives are, uh, are, are in your hands. We're, we're books that you write, Lord. And, and even though we've seen some strange things happen in our lives and we've been taken down some rough paths, Lord, we know that, that this is the plan you have for us. And, Lord, the plan you have for us in the future is, is, is a plan of peace and joy. And, and, Lord, the greatest thing of all will be being able to talk to you, speak to you, to touch you, to see you. God, we look forward to that. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name.